This is Football CFB, the home of unique football content. I never told you You scared off the vultures I never told you You scared off the ghosts living in my head That lay lonely in the dirt That Delighted to be joined today on Football CFB. First of all, by Ronnie Peake, who very kindly shared his mental health story with CFB a few weeks ago. The reaction to that episode has been unbelievable. Um, over 2,000 people have tuned in, which is fantastic, spreading the word for mental health. But we're both very lucky today to be joined by Sam Delaney, who you'll all know is a journalist, author, broadcaster, and very prolific podcaster as well. Loves football, just like Ronnie and I, and he's someone who's spoken openly and honestly about his own mental health issues. Sam listened to our last podcast about mental health and related to it, so we're delighted he's agreed to come on and chat. First of all, Sam, how are you? I'm very well, thanks, lads. Yeah, very happy to be talking to you both. Cheers. I thought I just want to add one more thing as well. Is, is Sam is someone um, who helped me through a lot of mental health issues um, when I was going through the dark times without probably even knowing it because the podcasts that he's got and how he openly talks about mental health issues <clears throat> kind of helped me also talk about mine um, and kind of just get it out there and ask for help and and be a little bit more open about it than, than I was then I kind of got brought up to be um so you know he probably doesn't even know that but uh but thanks for that sam and this is why i wanted you on because we know how much of a trailblazer you are and spreading the word for uh, men's and everyone's mental health really well i'm i'm very happy to hear that and and you know but i think that now you're doing the same thing and as i just said to you both off air i think it's like a great domino effect amongst blokes like us uh, by which I mean, you know, sort of blokes who, who, you know, have spent their life going to football and going to the pub and being involved in a, a sort of a, a laddie kind of, um, you know, masculine sort of culture that we live in here in this country. I think that, you know, it probably has been harder for people who are from that kind of background or from that kind of culture to open up, which is why there is such a well-documented problem amongst uh, you know men particularly men under 45 with mental health right so it's a it's a massive problem and I think the only reason I came out and started speaking more openly about it is that there were people that I could relate to who I'd heard do the same so then that you know disarms you a little bit and makes you think oh, I'm not alone and it also makes you think oh you can talk about it in a way that isn't um, necessarily sounds needy or earnest or self-pity and you can talk about it in an honest way that can almost be funny sometimes you know and that um i i heard and read certain people doing that more and more and i found that really brilliant and then that encouraged me to do the same or it made me feel less scared or nervous about doing the same because for a lot of my life i would have felt all of these feelings and not spoken about them because i would have thought a bit weird it's a bit weird that I feel like this. Any anyone like my mates or my brothers or anyone I know would just think it's like super weird. So I'm not going to mention it. The more yeah. people talk about it, the less weird it seems. So then I talked about it 
and then that made me feel better. So I'm not saying I did it for entirely selfless reasons. Oh, I want to go and give to others. I just think talking about it and being honest about it uh, out loud just makes me feel so much better from a selfish point of view. And then, and that passes on to other people, helps them talk, and so it goes on. So I think that there's a big domino effect going on. I've seen it really accelerate even in the last 18 months, and I think that's really great. And I thought your the chat you two had recently on this podcast was absolutely like a golden example of it, the way you spoke about it in a way that was really honest, um, funny at times, and just not, you know, that sort of feeling where people talk sort of too seriously about something yeah. and it makes yeah. you feel a bit uncomfortable because yeah. it makes you feel like you're being a bit self-pitying or overdramatic. Do you know what I mean? I want to yeah. talk about it, honestly, but I don't want to feel like I'm self-pitying or overdramatic, you know? Yeah, the the one thing we didn't want it to be was a sob story because... Mm. At the end of the day, we've we've kind of both come out of it, and um, on on the right track. So, and you know, some of this stuff that that I, that I've done in the past is is quite funny when I look back on it. I mean, I remember when I was like young. I, for some reason, I just decided uh, to take the anxiousness on pulling part of my hair out and got a, a bald patch at the, <laughs> wow. at the, t- at the top left hand uh, side of my hair. And I had to kind of lie about that and said I'd fell over on a five-a-side pitch and it burnt it off. And I could see people going, what? <laughs> how would that happen? <laughs> <laughs> but there's all sorts of things with that, you know, when, when your inner voice is, the, the voice that's really, that I've learned is trying to protect you, right? It's there to, it's there to keep saying, well, to stop you from killing yourself or hurting yourself but it sometimes just gets over overreacted and sometimes it's telling you things that are just bizarre and if you if you don't understand it and you don't um and you don't know how to deal with it it just sends you into, and you listen to it and you you get the feeling from it then it just sends you into fight or flight like instantly mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i uh i've i'm it was like People use this word anxiety now, which is a good word. But for years, I didn't even know that word. I think once I went to the doctor, it was the first time I went to the doctor. I was in my, probably my mid-30s, and it was an old, my older brother just went, listen, mate, you are – I'd sort of opened up to him a bit, and he just yeah. went – he went, you are – he, he used a few examples of things where I had just become so obsessive with worry about yeah. – small worries that I just yeah. was like going over and over and over again, like bloody Ray, Dustin Hoffman in Rain Man. Right? <laughs> yes. There'd be one thing that like a letter or a bill or something. And I just could not stop going on and on and on and on and on about it. And he told me about once I'd, I'd actually been on holiday on a wedding in Italy, a family wedding. And he, and, and I'd, and I'd, I'd had a letter um, from uh, the, from the Inland Revenue. Right. And it was about the fact that an accountant who I shared with my yeah, I had the same accountant as my brother and loads of other people who I knew and work with in the industry I work in. It was like probably one of the most um, the most widely used accountants. Anyway, he was part of a routine investigation by the by the Inland Revenue. They yeah. sent a letter out to 6000 people and it was one of these standard things that just get automatically generated by a computer somewhere. Right. Yeah. And it lands on 6,000 doorsteps. One of those doorsteps is mine. Lots of my closest friends and relatives received the same letter and were just, oh, well, oh, that's all right. I received it the day before I went on this family wedding in Italy. Mm. Beautiful place. All my family and loved ones there. Absolutely fantastic. My brother hadn't made it out. 
I was so freaked out that he said I he that he had something like 30 missed calls from me oh, on the shit. evening that I'd arrived in Italy. Right. And for at least half of them, I'd left messages as well. And, you know, I think leaving a voicemail for anyone is unforgivable in this day and age <laughs> for under any circumstances. I mean, you know, if someone leaves a voicemail for me about anything, I'm so fucked off about it. Right. Um, I'd left about 15, 16 voicemails messages. Oh, have you got this letter? Oh, I don't know what's going to happen. Oh, maybe he's broken the law. Oh, what are we going to do? Right. I am like the most straight down the line. Honestly, I'm the most straight down the line, boring guy when it comes to like money, taxes and all of that sort of stuff. Right. But he said you were acting like fucking you were Robert Maxwell, right? You're just about to jump off a boat because you'd been rumbled for some sort of like <laughs> massive financial scam. And he went, and he didn't stop. You just didn't stop. And you ruined your whole weekend by calling me, calling me, calling me nonstop. He went, I didn't answer because I couldn't handle it. I couldn't handle the pressure of talking to you. And there's various other things. So he goes, go to the doctor. So I went to the I said, and I thought, I've never considered it before. I went, I can't go to the doctor. What, you think I'm mentally ill? He went, you're not mentally ill. He goes, but you, you've clearly got problems. You have done all your life. Go and talk to the doctor about it. And I yeah. thought it was such a mad thing he was saying. But I went. And then they used the word anxiety for the first time. Said, so, you know, you've got, uh, you know, generalized uh, anxiety disorder. And yeah. I thought, well, that, that, that doesn't sound too bad. Yeah. Uh, but then a couple of years later when my best mate went through a similar set of feelings but he couldn't and he opened up to me but he couldn't quite pinpoint what it was he was feeling so I said let's go for a run so we went for a run to give by the river and he said the, but the best way that I'd ever summed it up where there was a breakthrough was I said basically mate it's about going through a phase sometimes a matter of months where the entire time you are shitting yourself but you don't quite know why right yeah exactly and, yep. and, and he went yeah that's it I just, <laughs> I just wake up every morning shitting myself but i'm not sure what i'm shitting myself about it keeps changing but i just can't stop shitting myself and i'm like well that's it that's it yeah. isn't it i mean yeah that's the best way to describe it to a lot of blokes like us and i had this similar thing where i was kind of like always worried that i would lose the house lose mm-hmm. me job so like any kind of time like we were talking about spending anything i'll be like well why do we need to do that we can we, we can we can live without it and you know i had enough money to be able to spend on things but i just yeah. wanted to i wanted to pay the house off because i had this irrational thought that i was going to get sacked i was going to le- lose the house etc etc yeah but one of the things that, that that looking back on it now it's just bizarre so my wife was down and um down at the shops and, and this little old lady fell over and cut her head and uh, my wife kind of just said, okay, come into my car and we'll take you to the hospital and, and get you sorted. So this was when I was like, I was in the house by myself and I was in a horrendous like mood where I was overthinking everything. And she came in and said, oh, look, this is what happened. Um, I, I said, this this little old lady, she should cut her head. And what I said was like absolutely horrific. It was, you sure you should have done that for insurance reasons? <laughs> putting her in your car and then she so the lady came about two weeks later and came in the house and went into the kitchen and then this is where it kind of all came to a head because my wife came in and louise and just said you know what ronnie i couldn't bring her in to see you because of what you said about the insurance and, and, oh, and the hard man. time you gave us and i was like oh shit and then it was it was on that weekend where she just said like like your brother said to you there's nothing I can do to help you. You need to see someone 
that's yeah. a professional. Yeah, it's good when someone tells you that, but I think it was different times because we're going back like nine years ago, I think, when I first went and sort of spoke to a doctor. And back then, it felt like a really massive thing. And do you know what? I was really quite secretive about it as well, beyond, you know, my wife knowing. I was yeah. like, I didn't want anyone to know, yeah. you know, and because as you said, you know, it's just you don't want that. I don't know what I thought. All these terrible stigmas that it's so brilliant now that I know that if someone listening to this, for instance, or, or someone going through that, it was the age that I was then. I think there are so um, there, there are so fewer uh, barriers to go in and seeking help than, than there was even 10 years ago. Because 10 years ago, there was just in my mind, I was thinking, imagine if people knew that I particularly someone who I thought has always kind of put across the character of being particularly confident, outgoing and, you know, sort of happy-go-lucky, which, to be honest, I do feel like that a lot of the time, right? Um, but sometimes yeah, I don't. Yeah. Uh, sometimes I don't. And back then, I had to keep up an act, which is so, as you'll both know, so exhausting, right, to keep up an act yeah. of being, like, pretty a pretty chilled-out kind of happy-go-lucky bloke when inside you are, like, you feel like you might cry at any moment, but you don't quite know why. Uh, it was it was nightmarish. But there was, you know, a lot of things where I thought, God, people would judge me. And frankly, it was because I probably had judged other people. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That's yeah. why I thought people would judge me. It's because I had probably, if I'm honest, if I'd heard of people, you know, who had had to seek help for anything mental health related, I would have thought, oh, bloody hell, a bit dodgy. They've gone a bit loopy, haven't they? What's the matter with them? They've lost control. Do you know? Do you know what I mean? That's sort of what I would have been conditioned to have thought. And then I thought that's what people will think about me. Now, I'm delighted to say that for a lot of men, you know, it's not such a big deal if they sort of decide that they want to go and tell their doctor that they've been shitting themselves for the last two months about losing their house or whatever. Yeah. Callum, you you kind of what was your experience, Callum? And in kind of asking for that help with the doctor and the various phone numbers you can call? Well, you've summed it up perfectly there, Sam, in the sense that that idea of the act is such where you're feeling pretty miserable, but I'm the same as you in the sense that normally quite an outgoing person, someone that likes a laugh and a joke. So yeah. people from the outside looking in would never be able to tell because I would try and maybe tell more jokes and be even more lighthearted than normal, which they might have thought, oh, he's just acting daft. But really, that was me trying to cover up how I was feeling inside at all costs. And, yeah. and in terms of myself, I work in education, so I was worried about seeking help because I thought, right, will this affect my job? If it does affect my job, where do I go from here? And then I just get into a spiral of negative thinking where you end up focusing and getting really, really anxious and worried about the what-ifs rather than the realities. And I think going to seek help helped me eventually start to go over that bit by bit and sort of put my thoughts on trial in a sense and say, is that something you really need to be worried about? Is that the right way to handle it? Is there another way of thinking? And and as I say, as you've said and Rory said as well, seeking the help is the best thing I've ever done. Yeah, I mean, it's such a way. And, and do you also feel like, you know, obviously professional help is invaluable expert help but also the more people around you who you can feel sort of totally normal and relaxed in sort of just mentioning that you're feeling in that way or that you've 
yeah, or that you've, you know, had these issues and stuff, life becomes so much easier because there's so much less acting involved, isn't there? Absolutely spot on in terms of, I told my fiance, I told my mum, and that was a big step at first. And then I, I went to seek help, um, dealt with that. And then eventually when I came out the other end, I told my, my, my closest friends and they were stunned that they never knew about this and they felt quite bad. But I said yeah. to them at the time, although I'm close to you, as a as a we talked about this at the start, as a bloke, as a guy, you're sitting down with one of your mates and they're saying, oh, what do you think's going, who's going to win this week, Liverpool, Man City or whatever, to then say, by the way, I'm feeling really anxious, you know, it's, it's how you bring it up and I think yeah. that's yeah. the hardest bit because you don't want to, you don't want somebody to say, oh, who's better, Salah or Coutinho and then you start <laughs> saying, actually, none of them because I'm feeling really anxious and I need your help. It's, it's about how you yeah. bring it up in the right way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, God, you don't want to be that's the other thing you I suppose you know you go out with your mates you go to the football to the pub or whatever and you do it because you you know in a way it, it traditionally it's been a really useful escape and it and it you know when I was younger a lot of times if I felt like this when I was younger it actually would be good and I could just cure myself by a couple of nights out with the lads yeah. um but then it does get harder it does it's not such a fix-all as you get older from my experience but, and, but you're also really conscious of you don't want to be anyone's buzzkill. So you don't want to be the yeah. guy who turns up and is like, all right, lads, uh, I've been having some really difficult feelings and thoughts recently that I'd like us to all unpick. Do you know what I mean? Everyone's <laughs> like, Jesus Christ. Do you know what I mean? I, <laughs> so I, I, that's a yeah. difficult balance. I was, um, I have to say, when plucked up the courage and it took us about two weeks to make the call, I called this number and they were absolutely brilliant. It was just kind of not a problem. And I think I think health, the health professionals have have realised that you've just got to make it. Is, that first contact has to be so easy. So they're like, oh yeah, we understand and talk about it. And then they say, we'll give you a call back, and they call you back really quickly. And you have to you have to go through a bit of a questionnaire just so they where you are. But like I said on the last one, once you make that first step, you get on a wave. And you ride that wave, and although therapy and all the other stuff's hard, it's mm. it's never as hard as the first step just to say, look, I, I need some help. And on the point of um, speaking to telling other people, after I did the show with Callum, um, I realised, oh shit, there's some of my really good mates that I haven't told yet, because a lot of my good mates, I see them at the football, and I used to kind of like go and have like two or three pints no and, and no matter what uh, how how i was feeling down during the day at that particular day two three four pints would just snap us out of it for a period of time so yeah. they would never be able to say and i didn't want to bring it up because if i brought it up it would put us back to where i was feeling before i had a drink um so it became this thing where i just never got around to telling them and then but i tell you what when i when i told them after i did the podcast with callum they were absolutely brilliant, and these are these are guys, lads who were brought up in the 80s and 90s in the same kind of yeah. thing where they they didn't really understand what mental health was, and mm. you know if you if you said that out loud uh, in the pub, you'd just get the piss taken out of you and told told yeah. told to go home, you know. Um, but it's the whole you're right, Sam and, and Callum. The whole the whole spotlight and narrative on the whole thing is is changing um, for the better. 
I quite like it when people take the piss out of me, though. I don't know about you, like, about this particular issue. Like, there were mates on a group of, you know, the West Ham group of mates that I've had for years, and we've got kind of a WhatsApp group. And I think I wrote an article last year in The Guardian in which I was quite honest, and I had a lot of nice messages. And I was wondering when they, yeah, that particular group would respond. I can't remember the exact message, but one of them just wrote something like, oh, Nice article about being fucking mental in the paper today, <laughs> Sam. Right. <laughs> and I I really appreciated that response <laughs> because I'm like, I knew, I know where their hearts are. You know, yeah. I know that their hearts, and I know they're not thick, so I know that yeah. they're not taking it flippantly. But at the same time, with those kind of mates, if they'd suddenly been a bit maudlin and arm yeah. around the shoulder too much, you'd think, oh, God, you don't have to be like that, lads. I haven't completely changed into a different person. I'm just saying this is who I am sometimes. And I thought it kind of went without saying that they all, and I assume, I work on the assumption, like we're all three of us sitting and saying, well, we've all had bad experiences with this sort of thing, right? I have wrestled with anxiety, I now realise, my entire life. I mean, I can go yeah. back to childhood, through adolescence, 20s, 30s, right? All of those times I've got numerous stories where at the time I wasn't open about. Now I can look back and laugh and use them as examples of how this has haunted me my whole life. There have been episodes and they did start happening more as I I think as I became older and had kids, to be honest, where life does become more complicated and exhausting, which, by the way, is another stigma that, you know, people having kids is a wonderful thing. Having a family is a brilliant thing. It's the best thing that, that I've ever done in my life. Yeah. However, that's not to say that, you know, the exhaustion and the pressure and the complications that that brings, you're probably, most blokes are not prepared for. And yeah. it is terrifying. And you put on a brave face because you want to be a good dad. You don't, you don't want to say to someone, oh, I'm really struggling with being a parent. It's a real hassle. And sometimes I just, you know, feel like I can't handle it you know that's like that's quite a big admission but I think it's the case for everyone men and women right and so that's when it really got much much worse for me and I actually, agree yeah and, and, a, and a breakthrough moment for me was actually as a result I think I was drinking too much so I had to go through get recovering from you know effectively being an alcoholic and yeah. that and that brought loads of other stuff into light so I've struggled with it my whole life but I honestly think right and I don't mean it's over the top say I just operate on the basis that every single person I know struggles with this on one level or another because I don't think it would be human not to do you know what I mean I I think we have it's different degrees and some people yeah to be honest some people can cope better as well some people are more aware of it but I think it's it's mad to assume that anyone doesn't struggle with this stuff on some level on almost every day of their lives really yeah, the the thing about having the kids, oh, when I look back, I just I had these beliefs that I that I made up myself, which were just comical. So I had a belief that I had to prove to everyone that I could do this independently and bring up um, my son, obviously with my wife, independently, and I didn't want any help. Anyone that offered any help, apart from when I wanted to go out for a drink and babysitting reasons, I would like just say no we can do it so I, I ended up just putting all my close family like my in-laws and my mom and dad at arm's length and my brother and it's only since recently I've ever kind of just 
brought them back in and just said I had to go down and apologize. Well, I wanted to go down and apologize and say the reason that I've been really like off and distant is because I had this belief in my head that I had to prove to everyone that I could bring up kids. And I think that comes mm. down to mm. like the, the bringing up, uh, being brought up and being competitive and, you know, just putting on a brave face and getting on with it and stiff up the lip and all that kind of stuff. I, I was yeah I was competitive about fatherhood. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah I was. Yeah, like, I, I wrote an article around. Funnily enough, it was wasn't a it was around the time when all this other stuff started going on, and I'd, my my second child was probably about one, and I wrote a thing in the Telegraph newspaper, and the title that they gave it, not me, was Dadzilla, right? And yeah. the whole point of it was about how there was a culture of competitiveness amongst dads about who could be the most committed dad right yeah so you get together with mates and you'd almost do like little little brags or little bits of one-upmanship yeah. not about the stuff you used to do about who was best at football who pulled the most girls or who could drink the most right it would be like oh you know i just baked a load of brownies with my kids and now i'm taking them out <laughs> on a uh on a nature trail what about you <laughs> right and like do you know what I mean? Just like trying to sort of show people that I was like the king of dads. Right. And they were all lazy by comparison. Right. It's like mad. And now I look back and I think that article, the fact that actually what was really going on <laughs> behind the scenes, because there's this big photo of me and my kids baking, which, by the way, was a completely contrived photo shoot as well. <laughs> right. There was no baking. They're just I think the photographer bought her own bag of flour. Photos, right. And uh, and and I'm like, hey, look at this, happy families. But in the background, I'm like crawling into the GPs, going, please pres- prescribe me some Prozac. <laughs> so it's no coincidence because you, you know suddenly you're that's another act you're putting on. You've been putting on other acts all all through your adolescence and youth about yeah. being tougher than you are or braver than you are. Do yeah. you know what I mean? More confident than you are, and then. To compound it all, just as you're getting super knackered and you're never really sleeping properly and you're more worried about money than you've ever been in your life. On yeah. top of that, you're trying to pretend you're like <laughs> this amazing Best dad. Ever. <laughs> you're holding down a job, but you're also sort of like full time just doing all like, yeah, I'm on the PTA at the school. I'm really involved in setting up this year's summer fate. Do you know what yeah. I mean? It's then, like really unnecessary. And then to add to the... Um to the pressure once your your son starts to play football oh, against yeah. other kids with their dads mm. who are also competitive then it, then it just becomes a melting pot you know right. you, you hear i've seen lots of fights at uh at kids football matches oh god yeah i think that could be why yeah. it's that it's that competitive nature that you, you want to be see your son to be the best you want your son and if and, and if the, your son's not the best then i've seen parents like delude themselves that he is the best or she is the best and then have a fight about it. Um, and I, I remember I used to take it. So I used to be like that completely. Mm. And I used to um, take it. I used to put, take it internally rather than externally. So I used to come back from the football and then just rant and rave for about 30 minutes to me wife. And then I used to have to go to sleep for two hours to sleep off the nervous <laughs> energy. <laughs> Oh man, it's horrendous. Horrendous. Yeah, yeah I think, you know, we're all conditioned. We grow up in a culture to be competitive, and it's like that is one of the key things. There's yeah, that 
we yeah we can all share can't we and sort of go oh yeah i'm like that too I, what can you do about it? there are some things we can work on and we can just do to help ourselves and that is a good example of one it's just like leaving that sort of stuff leaving a, a desire to be perceived as the best at things at the door and accepting that in a way it is quite an adolescent characteristic and i have it as badly as anyone and i think we've all grown up with it you know it's part of being a bloke isn't it um but if you can if you can recognize that in yourself and sort of try to just ditch it then life will become simpler but you know i'm not saying i've done that i'm but it is at least it's all a work in progress isn't it oh yeah i mean yeah it is absolutely as you say there it's a complete work in progress and one of the things that intrigues me at the moment sam and and ronnie is the fact that obviously it's been over been in a lockdown situation for a long time just how have you coped mentally through this sam because there's so many people out there that this is really a massive challenge for them yeah i mean you know ups and downs really um when it started i was weirdly not manic but I was sort of I kind of got almost excitable about it I don't know why I think it was because the sort of madness of it all I remember once getting snowed in at my aunt's house in the countryside and that sort of or like you know when school occasionally got shut down at short notice because of snow anything unexpected that sort of brings a mild sense of anarchy is sort of excites me you know And that's how I felt for the first couple of weeks. Yeah. I also felt, and I, I don't know if you guys um, felt this at all, but I, I felt undiscussed with other people who I knew had, you know, were either in recovery or just were people who had suffered with anxiety, that we felt better able than the average person to deal with this because yep. we sort of felt as if, well, listen, I'm used to anxiety and my whole mission since I gave up drinking and, and started to confront all of this stuff is to is an acceptance of how little control we have over our lives right that is almost at the heart of getting over a lot of this stuff is like you kind of just accept that you know life is extremely unpredictable and there's only so much you control and so it control so in a way you just have to recognize that and let go right and that's a big thing for me day to day and so when this happens that's just a big reminder to everyone of, of you know uh, of that simple truth is that yeah of course things have just fall, spiraled out of control and we don't know what's going to happen from one day to the next so all you can do is focus on you know the positives in your life and taking each day as it comes and all of that other stuff so that made me feel better equipped however there has been periods in lockdown which has been going on for a long time now where my tendency to become obsessive about small problems and inflate them has has been compounded by the fact that I'm in a house just with three other people. There are not many distractions. So when I have a problem that my mad obsessive brain is deciding, right, that's going to be the thing that I'm going to shit you up about. That's what my brain says. Like, See that little thing you've got? Yeah. That is going to be the thing that I keep banging on about 24-7. Even in the middle of the night, I'm going to wake you up with it, right? And it'll be a small problem. And now sometimes if I'm living a busy lifestyle, which involves being out of house, going to different work things and social things, then your brain's getting distracted by different shit. But there's been periods of like a couple of weeks, you know, where I have been where I've just hooked onto one thing to worry about. And 
to be honest, it's been a, probably a nightmare for my wife, who's extremely supportive and as yep. and as sort of a, and, she's a good and like, wife. She's a good wife, and she's <laughs> not um she's not uh she she has a different personality to me, thank God. Yeah. Where she is a lot calmer and rational than I am, and yeah. she's known me for so long as well. She can see this stuff coming sometimes before I do. So she sort of you know has to field me like literally i don't know if you fellas get this but literally i'll be unable once i've got onto something i literally can't talk about anything else <laughs> like yeah I'm the, yes. the, the yep. kids get the kids are like this is so boring like i was applying <laughs> for a i was applying for a bounce back loan for one of my companies right because obviously situation so the, the, i don't know if you know about the, the bounce back loans that the government have owned which is to small medium-sized businesses yep. Yep. And and, you know, it was it all happened quite suddenly. The banks were struggling to keep up. So it wasn't completely straightforward. There was a few hurdles to jump through. There was a few glitches along the way where they rejected you, then accepted you again, blah, blah, blah. Admin stuff, right? Admin stuff that if I was living a normal lifestyle, I'd just it would have been happening in the background and eventually it would have been OK. I literally my kids are like so familiar with my feelings about NatWest Bank's customer service, right? Because I talked about very little else over breakfast, lunch and dinner for about a two week period, right? And I just think, God, my, I'm so lucky to have a patient family because it's so boring. When I get like that, it's so boring because I can only think and talk about my little problem over and over and over again, like a nutter, you know? Yeah, I like this might make me sound really horrible but like like you said when lockdown was announced in my head i was like right let's see how these fuckers deal with this (laughs) (laughs) i know what you mean yeah (laughs) and and my my kids are a little bit older now right and i'm not ashamed to admit that i've had some counseling from my 15 year old son (laughs) yeah yeah, i've kind of gone to him and said oh I'm, i'm I'm feeling like this. I'm feeling like that. Because I told them all about it. Um, and you know, the 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 kids nowadays are so level-headed. Yeah, they don't they don't drink aware. as much. They're very yeah. aware. They know and, all about mental health. Yeah. And like some of the advice he gave us was like the best advice I've had. It's it's and I'm supposed to be his dad, dad and leading him, showing him the way. Um, it's crazy. The one thing I was going to ask um, Sam was. I was listening to your uh, lockdown podcast and I think oh yeah you were talking about um people that are really anxious about coming out of lockdown and going into what back into what it was like before lockdown I think I think yeah. that's a really interesting point because there's a there's a narrative spinning up like everyone that I see there's everyone's going I can't wait till I get back we're going to have parties every day every weekend you come around to mine you come around yeah. to yours and you know I think there'll be a lot of people thinking oh shit I do not want that to happen um, and then they'll be quietly saying that because if they kind of say that in public the happy clapper uh, crowd will jump on them saying why are you being so miserable um, yeah etc etc yeah, I mean, listen, I am serious. At first, I was joking when I first started thinking that, but I am actually quite seriously. I find myself getting little pangs of anxiety when I I don't follow. I try to avoid the news these days, especially during this period, as much as possible. I just don't think it's healthy to certainly be on Twitter. I use tw- Twitter 
exclusively to promote things for myself in an entirely selfish way right but i just <laughs> i'm not i don't look at much else right um so i try to avoid news and but when i hear little bits and bobs about well it's going to be relaxed and soon we'll be going back to work and stuff or the kids will be back at school i feel gutted i do i feel really nervous and anxious about it because to be honest I used to be an extremely sociable person. Over the last five years, I've become much less of a sociable person, probably gone too far the other way, to be honest, and isolated myself a bit too much. But I like to focus on a more restful way of life, right? I like to look after myself. I don't like to put myself in places where I, you know, I just don't like to make myself uncomfortable. Um, And uh, I've become a bit, I have become a bit pipe and slippers if I'm honest, right? Um, and so for me, there's not much socialising that I miss, right? <laughs> not really. Uh, because I also think, you know, when I knocked it all on the head, the drinking and all the rest of it, I was like, I remember a therapist saying to me, because my therapist was a former addict herself, and she disarmed me on my first ever meeting with her by saying, whatever you can admit to me, don't feel embarrassed because I can almost guarantee that I've done the same, but worse. Right. And so that's really great when you hear someone saying that. And she also said, you know, people like us, you went, you're born with a certain amount of partying tokens. Right. And some people choose to spread them out shrewdly across their whole life. And other people just cash them all in, in one big (laughs) piece by the time they're 40. Right. Just think of it as you've cashed all yours in. So when yeah. you stop, you're not missing out on anything. It's just that you've done a lifetime's partying already, haven't you? And I yeah. thought, yeah, I really have. So now when people are talking about going out partying and I'm sat at home, like stroking the cat, and that's not a euphemism. I mean, literally, <laughs> cat, right? And having a cup of tea and, and watching TV. I mean, I'm delighted to be doing that. So that's the pace at which I like to operate. And this lockdown situation has made it better and I'm in my house and I'm spending every day with my kids and sure we all kind of you know irritate each other from time to time what families don't but I bloody love the fact that I eat three meals a day with them do you know what I mean and I play with them in the garden and all that stuff because really that's the stuff we're all aspiring to really all along and I know I'm lucky and privileged and not everyone's in you know found themselves in that sort of a setup during lockdown I get that but me personally what do, what am I working for anyway, right? What am I worrying about? What where's all this anxiety come from? Ultimately, all I want is to have a a, a happy and secure life with my family, and really, that's what I've been having. Do you know what I mean? That's what yeah. I've been having over the last two months. So I can't really complain too much. I mean, I'd like to go on holiday. I'd like to go abroad. I don't like the idea of missing out on going abroad this year or maybe forever. So that's a shame. But other than that, um, uh, I, I love it. And the, the idea of going back to a more hectic, more crowded, more fast paced, more polluted way of living is intimidating yeah. to me at the moment, if I'm honest. And I think it will be I don't know how much feedback you've had on the, the lockdown podcast, but I think there'll be a many, many people feeling the same, but just mm-hmm. kind of afraid to say it because it's not it's not the narrative that that's been um plotted out on social yeah. media and with your friends and stuff like that so also what i mean everyone's so quick to judge aren't they like nowadays i mean you know especially on social media and and you can imagine people would say oh well it's all very easy for you to say 
that you enjoy lockdown. But what about people who are lonely or what about people who are less privileged? And, what about, and of course, I accept that, as I said, yep. what I'm saying is for me personally, I don't want to impose lockdown on the whole of society. <laughs> right. I think, it, of course, it is better for life to go back at least to a degree, although I hope we learn lessons, you know, from this. But I just I'm just honest about me. I'm not judging anyone else. I'm just saying for me personally, this lifestyle, there's more positives than negatives out of it. I speak to my family and friends on Zoom. I've pro- you know, a lot of people have said this. I mean, so it's almost become a bit of a cliche, but I certainly talk to old mates more over the last few months than I do ordinarily because I've reached out I had a best mate right from school who I hadn't spoken to in about 18 years and I reached out to him and we're mates again and that's all happened because of lockdown right um and there's various other people who I have more contact with my dad who lives alone and he's has quite a solitary lifestyle anyway every time I check in on him he goes listen don't worry about me he goes I don't go out anyway the only difference with, with this is that I get messages from all of my kids and my other family members almost every day. Whereas <laughs> usually I might not hear from any of you for like a month. <laughs> and I, he goes, so it's just like the same, but better. Definitely. It's like. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a silence that you'll have to cut out, Callum. Um... <laughs> <laughs> what I was going to say, Sam, was one of the things that, is coming back to normal. Um, well, I say normal, relative norm soon is football. Just how much has your passion of football helped your mental health journey? Uh, yeah, it has been a big, really big factor um, throughout my life. Uh, the social side of it, the distraction. I always say it's, it's, football's like a parallel universe, really, isn't it? Um, because you can, no matter what's going on in real life, you can go to the game with your mates and for that period you are just immersed in that and the only thing impacting upon your thoughts or your emotions one way or the other is what's going on in the game and so on that level it's great but even when you're not able to attend games like at the moment you know just the paraphernalia that surrounds it I've been really immersed to a huge extent in in football nostalgia over the lockdown period watching all the old world cup films and watching old West Ham stuff on YouTube, loads of and documentaries and all that stuff to the extent that I've almost thought, oh, I think I prefer football nostalgia to actual real life football. Um, so, yeah, the, you know, and the, and the social side of it, um, it's just a huge part of my life. And I, I don't know what life would have been like without it. I assume probably that there would have been that there's something else. I think everyone has got something, you know, um, but football you know, the way that, you know, the three of us who've never met in person really can just straight away slip into a conversation. And actually, we haven't really been talking about football. But I do think the fact that we all are football fans, right, um, is a big factor in why the three of us are able to slip into this sort of, you know, what I feel is a, a very comfortable situation very quickly. Because yep. uh, it's corny to say, but I do think there's a global family. You know, you go abroad, don't you? And you sit in a taxi and you've arrived somewhere alien. And, you know, those of us with anxiety travel can be a real trigger, as the kids yep. say. Right. You can arrive in a I mean, I've I've been lucky enough to travel to all sorts of exciting places for work and stuff in my life and have adventures. But I never admitted it at the time. But I was always suffering from acute anxiety. Right. Yep. But 
when you're when you're like a young magazine journalist getting to go off to like exotic places and have adventures for a living there's no way you can say actually i'm really worried that the plane might crash or i'm really worried that i'm in so far away from home and i'm not going to see my girlfriend for weeks or any of these other things those are all things that i thought when i was in my 20s but i couldn't admit it anyway you'd get somewhere and you'd be all feeling like a real fish out of water really anxious and nervous and like you know an alien and then you'd get in a cab and you'd see the cabbie would have some football, his football team pennant hanging off the rear view mirror. Yeah. And so in the midst of your anxiety, you'd start talking to him and saying, oh, is that, is that your team, is it? And then he'd start talking to you back in pidgin English. And the whole journey, you'd just bond over talking about football in broken yeah. bits of like various languages. And by the time I got to the other end of the taxi journey, I'd just feel more at home and welcome and human again because I made a, a sort of a human connection with someone and and that yeah that's probably the biggest part I think of, of the, the role football plays in my mental health I think is that feeling part you know you can always connect with someone can't you you're always able to connect with someone unless you go to America and I remember um we were, we were about to go to America and I was just I just got myself into a, a one month panic attack about mm shit what will i say because i mean i know a little bit about american football but you're right it was like i could always go to that and it was yeah. like if i speak to an american or a new york person about football they're not going to know what i'm saying it's going to be awkward so i, yeah. I actually like for about a month was worried about what i was <laughs> going to say and then <laughs> and then the tip thing it was like oh, i was yeah. speaking to my wife i was going what what do you do with tips and i, I had to like do a like load of research on how to do tips but yeah. when i got there it was it was it was fine and yeah it's just you make you make such a thing in your mind of these things if you if you like that it it just becomes crippling and and you know i mean my, like you said about your good wife my my wife is is amazing because she had to put up with all that shit it's like when we're just going to america you yeah. don't need to think about like what you're gonna say to the cabbie or what you're gonna tip. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I said yeah, yeah. We went to a couple of years ago with, with a family, like we went on a bit of a road trip with the kids, and that was a period in the build up to that. Funny, funny enough, in about yeah, about a month build up to that, I got myself in uh, into a state, and actually I, I wasn't thinking any specific thoughts like you just described, but I was just feeling really, really anxious, and I couldn't quite put a finger on why and I went to see the doctor and said look I'm really struggling and I'm worried that when I go on this holiday I want it to be really nice for the for the kids and for my wife but I'm worried that I'm going to ruin it by being a miserable anxious yeah. bastard while I'm there yeah. Yeah. and um <laughs> really I was imagining that there he had some kind of new miracle drug that he could give me that you know I always sort of half expect that right uh, yeah oh yeah we got this pill mate and it's non-addictive and it's got no side effects but as soon as you take it you just stop shitting yourself about everything right yeah but no they haven't invented that yet right so he just went to me so okay what are you up to he's a young bloke younger than me and i told him about he goes what's going on with work and life generally and i mentioned the third thing i mentioned was i'm going away and he went right so you're going away with your family and you're you're renting a car and you're driving we were doing a long road trip across california he goes and you're going to drive your old family across california and i went yeah 
And he went, have you been to America before? I said, yeah, I've been all over the place. I've travelled loads. He goes, have you driven in a foreign country before? I said, yeah, I've not got any worries about it. I've done it all before. And he went, yeah. He goes, I think I think you're shitting yourself about that. <laughs> and I went, no, I'm not. I don't, I'm not shitting myself about that. That's no problem, mate. And he's like, yeah, I reckon you are, mate. Like that. <laughs> I was like, shit, I think he's right. I think I hadn't noticed it, but I think I just got all tensed up inside. But there was no way I was prepared to admit it because, you know, I wanted to be, I didn't want to admit that I was, to me, it just seems babyish, I suppose, to sort of say you're a bit scared about going on holiday to a foreign country for two weeks, right? But it does, it's, you know, things like that can trigger anxiety. You just have to face it. Yeah, I remember, I remember when we used to go on holiday with my cousin and he's such a chilled out guy and we used to land and get all settled and then for the first three days i'd be all like mr miserable anxious and all that kind of stuff mm. i remember one time we were having a drink and steve and my cousin just said i heard i, I think i heard his wife say what's the matter with ronnie and I, mm. I heard him say it probably takes him about three to four days just to get over um what's going on and then he'll be all right yeah. <laughs> and I was like, that is shocking because they yeah. have to put up everyone on that yeah. holiday has to put up with my moods because yeah. it, it, but then they they make a way of kind of just allowing that yeah working around it working around it and it's like oh god when i look back at that now i'm like that is horrendous mm. but when when he said it i was like yeah yeah he's right I do. I'm different. I just need that time. <laughs> do, you, do you both do you, do you think that like this will be ongoing? Like obviously, I, you know, I listened to, to your conversation. You both like, you know, made incredible steps in overcoming those darkest times. But what do you think about the future? Do you sort of accept that this will always be part of you or do you think that you can conquer it completely or what? From my point of view, I think. To be honest, I, I see it as something that I'll always have, and it's just about sort of managing it rather than. So in the future, obviously, when it when when and if it does occur again, that I can control the anxiety rather than it controlling me, and just yeah. trying to put the steps in place to do that. Yeah, yeah. Yep. This is why Sam's British um, is British best journalist Britain's because best he, journalist, he, yeah. he starts asking questions when we're meant to be interviewing him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I can't help it. It's just instinct, instinct, right? Question, question, question. But I, I, I agree with you about that. I think, you know, I, I just think you have to accept to be part of your, I think I've, you know, changed in lots of ways and improved in loads of ways and can handle things so much better most of the time. But then all of a sudden I'll surprise myself just as I think, yeah, I've conquered all of this. I'll surprise myself by reacting to a situation in the almost exact way I might have done when I was about 12 years old. Do you yeah. know what I mean? And then I think, oh, shit, that's weird. I suppose the difference is once you've got insight and you can see yourself behaving in a certain way and you're aware of the fact that it's just part of who you are and you're aware that it's strange and blah, 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 then it makes it a bit easier and quicker to get over. But I I know that I'm still totally capable of reacting in a unhelpful way to certain situations or worries or concerns. And I just yeah. like, you know, and I think I always will. But you're right. You just build up a tool set, don't you? You start yeah. once you've accepted that it's part of you, you start to build up a set of, of, of tools and skills to com- combat it when it visits you. Yeah. And I think for me, the 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 medication, it kind of just allows you to to start the day. Yeah. 
allow, yeah. so I'll, when I wake up, I'll have like this massive fear for about 20 minutes until I have my breakfast and I get myself ready. But I think in my in my experience, what has happened is I would get a thought on my head before the medication and before the therapy that I would deal with and reframe like like they tell you to do and that, that works. But then about 10 minutes, it would come back and it would come yeah. back and it would come back. But what the medication has done for me is it, it won't come back till probably maybe the next day. And I was talking to the doctor and, and you know, the, the, these um, this medication doesn't take away all anxiety because if it did, you'd be running in front of a, a road um, yeah. get, just like blase or betting all the money that you've got on German football. Um, but it it just for me gives us the platform to be able to then use the other skills and the toolkit that I've used. So to answer your question, no, I think we'll, I'll always be battling it. The, during lockdown, I've had this, this strange situation where like I'll sometimes be there and there'll be something on about football and I love football. I want to go and see it or cricket. And then this, this thing in my mind will just say, well, we can change it. We can change it. And there's this mm. part of my mind that thinks if I will it and say it enough, it's going to change. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> like, well, that, oh. goes, that goes back to control. I mean, control is like the almost the biggest thing, I think, at the heart of all of these feelings we have. And that is why giving up, um, going through my sort of journey of giving up um, drugs and alcohol is really, it taught me a load of stuff. There's a lot of stuff that you get exposed to in recovery and 12 steps and stuff about control. And you realize whether you're a drinker or not, it all comes back to that. And the idea that little things like you think if something's worth worrying about, it must be worth worrying about the whole time, right? Because yeah. your brain thinks, what I'll do is I can, I'm sort of smart enough to, um, the way I will deal with this potential problem is to think through every last single possible scenario that could unfold. And then I'll be ready for anything and I'll have a solution to it. And I can't yes. be surprised by any of it. I'll be ready. Yep. But what that needs is me to put the hard yards in now of sitting yep. and thinking Planet. everything through in meticulous detail yeah. for scenarios <laughs> that will almost never arise right they, like, they, they, if you look back at all the things you've worried about like mark twain's got a load of great quotes about it and he goes i am an old man who has had many worries many of which have never actually existed so something like that right yeah and he just or most of which have never existed yeah. right so it's like he's you know he's he's looking back on his life and thinking the amount of fucking problems that were just completely imaginary that i have devoted perhaps half of my fucking headspace and life to to thinking about it's unbelievable isn't it for me it's it's all about understanding um this voice in your head and why this voice in your head is doing what it's doing and, and it, there's a part of your brain that's trying to keep you alive and trying to keep you from like hurting yourself mm. and what i was thinking the other day was it's been there since i was born and it'll be probably the thing that i talk to or hear when i die which is a bit morbid but it will be it never leaves you it'll always be there so the trick is to try and understand that and live with it and accept it and if you think you know the reason that i'm thinking this is just because this 
we're in we're we've got an inbuilt need for comfort and to be loved and to stay alive and to breed and all this type of stuff and that's all this thing's doing mm. if you can accept that and understand it it makes things just a lot better whereas before I before I got that got that understanding through therapy all I thought of is shit there's something wrong with us and something bad's gonna happen yeah 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 that thing about the mornings as well Ronnie it had a big impact on me when I listened to the podcast last week and you said about um how I was something I never knew and had never heard until you said it about how your body releases the hormone to get you started in the morning that is the same one that causes stress and anxiety and I've always said that in the morning I just wake up in a state of anxiety and then my day is about slowly waiting for that to die down and by the evening very often I'm the opposite I feel great I can look back on what how I felt in the morning and think god that was so strange that I was so worried about everything and I never understood it although I have been told by psychiatrists before that it's very common but he never explained why he said oh yeah you're worse in the mornings that's the same with a lot of people yeah Uh, but he never quite explained why um but yeah so you that was really enlightening to me and to be honest that's a very direct and practical way that listening to your podcast uh helped me because I was like after listening to you both on on uh I think Saturday or Sunday I was like you know it, it was um it was great in loads of ways but that particular piece of information I think every day this this week I've woken up with my usual weird anxious morning mood and have thought about those words yeah well that's that's great and, and there's another little nugget to that as well and, and by the way this was from an NHS therapist mm. who are absolutely amazing because if you um, then have something to eat, then your brain and your mind goes into um, feast and fast mode, mm. where they no longer it no longer goes into fight or flight because it knows it has to digest this food. That's its job. And as soon as you have something to eat, like breakfast, then, for in my experience, you can get it to go away quicker. Lovely. And some of the breathing exercises you do. So one of the breathing exercises, it was 7-11 breathing. Um, what it does is basically tricks your hippocampus into thinking that you are resting. Because if if you breathe like that, it thinks that you, you're going to go to sleep or something like that. And it, it just calms the fight or flight um, response. And um, when the therapist was explaining it to me, it's like, if you fight your inner voice, you'll become more tired and you'll never win. But if you accept yeah. your inner voice, you can you can live with it and just accept what it is and it's going to happen. And it's there for a reason because it's there to kind of save you um, and keep humanity going at the end of the day. Um, that that helped. When I heard that, I was like, yeah, that completely makes sense. Well, I'm going to um, start having a bigger breakfast. <laughs> what I was going to say, Sam, is in terms of this chat so far, we've we've talked a wee bit about football, we've talked about mental health and strategies. The last question I've got for you before we let you go, um, what would be some of the tips you would give to anyone suffering who can now listen to this? I guess the first one is just to talk about it, which I know is easier said than done um, because of the reasons we've discussed. But uh, no matter how there'll be a voice telling you that your concerns and your worries and your preoccupations are trivial and 
that you know the thing you hear this phrase like oh first world problems right and that is almost designed to make people feel guilty about what they're worried about it doesn't matter whatever it is you're worrying about I've opened up about some of the most absurd things that I think that I worry about right it's not the point it doesn't matter what you're worrying about it's just the fact that you are worrying a lot you are anxious you do feel you don't feel quite right okay and um it doesn't really matter what the reasons are you, you're you're a human being it's like ronnie said as well this is just like your instinctive you this, these are instincts that are hardwired into you so yeah. don't worry about how big or small your problems might look to the outside because you speak to the right people you're not going to be judged on that basis right people aren't interested in the reasons they're just interested in how you feel and and helping you to try and get over it and sometimes you know you see people you talk to them out loud they understand you relate to them and it is like a weight off your shoulders so you know uh, try and speak to people either friends or loved ones or if not there's loads of independent places you can go to um one thing that i wrote about last year that i'm that i think is fantastic if if they exist in your because they're not everywhere yet is uh andy's man's club which i went to uh one meeting of to learn a bit about and it was started by an ex uh, rugby league pro um up in uh halifax and they're just groups they're not they're not unlike going to an aa meeting but they're less structured they don't have you know there's certain sort of language and and uh, belief systems around aa that put some people off this is an environment for blokes to just go and sit in that way where you are sort of half taking the piss and you're having a laugh but at the same time being really honest really similar to the conversation the three of us have had today right yeah. and I went to one with one of my best mates and we both had various issues and struggled with me. So we went along, we got a train one night. There's none in London, unfortunately. So we got a train to one in Peterborough and we just met a really interesting mix of blokes who had really normal lives, really normal concerns. It's not like the other people in there make you feel bad because they were going, well, I'm bankrupt or I've got cancer or, you know, I've just, I've lost my wife or whatever it is. Right. Some people have big problems like that, but some people are just like, do you know what? My boiler's been up the creek and I've been rowing with British gas for the last two weeks and I cannot think about anything else. And it's got to a stage where I can't get to sleep without half a bottle of scotch or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Like, it doesn't really matter. That's what I'm saying. Whatever the source of your concern is and your worry, that's not the point. The point is, is that you're worrying and you can't stop. So talk to people and you'll be surprised by the reaction you get. Absolutely. And that's great advice. And from Ronnie and myself, I just want to thank you for joining us on Football CFB today, Sam. And I think this conversation will help so many. Well, I hope so. And it's a real pleasure. And and once again, you know, thank you for, you know, a great podcast. I really enjoyed listening to you both before. I will continue to listen in the future. And um, yeah, let's stay in touch. So we'll dive down to the ocean and we'll make our home in a deep sea cave and our shells will all be open. They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song. We'll dive down to the ocean and we'll make our home in a deep sea cave and our shells will all be open. They'll be filled with song, they'll be